The Moment with Brian Compliment is brought to you by the new Showtime original series, Kidding, starring Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Carrey plays Jeff Pickles, a children's television icon and a force for good in an often cruel world. As his family life starts to unravel, Jeff's sanity is put to the ultimate test. Will he be able to keep it together? Don't miss the series premiere of Kidding. Sunday, September 9th at 10 p.m., following the season premiere of Shameless, only on Showtime. The series premiere is available for free on YouTube now. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Look, if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, uh, you know I don't always say that I'm incredibly excited about the conversation, even though I will only have people on who matter to me. But th- today's guest, Dee Snyder. Um, not only is he a legendary rock and roll musician and lead singer, but incredibly important to me personally as an artist, um, as a guy that I've known I'm 52, I met D. I was 21, maybe I was 21 and a half, but the first time I interacted with him, I was 16. D, you know, I think there's two of the greatest concerts I ever saw in my life were Twisted Sister at North Stage Theater in Glen Cove, Long Island, uh, when I was 16. And then uh, when you made it and it were at the height of your fame, I saw you at the pier with Rat opening for you. Oh, that was crazy. And that was one of the best twisted shows of all time. I think I, you tore the place apart. You guys tore the place apart. I mean, I remember they were literally piling up the folding chairs. It's almost like a bar. They didn't set them on fire, but it was a heap of chairs. I was on crutches. <laughs> I had a broken leg, a broken knee or whatever, and I was on crutches. And so my friends took me and we stood on those chairs and I was on crutches <laughs> on those folding chairs, you know, lifting my crutch in the, which in a show like that is insane. It, it was it was it was pandemonium actually. Um, and and I think something that's not talked about en- en- enough. Oh, now. do you know there was a complaint from New Jersey? Because you were so loud, I was cursing. Right. They could hear me when I when I was had the crowd chanting. You know, this is this is I can curse, right? Saying anything. Fuck else. you, whatever. And and they could hear it. They were sitting there, moms and dads sitting in their backyards in New Jersey, waterfront homes, and hearing the D. Snyder screaming, fuck you, from across the way. Letter came to the mayor's office. <laughs> Which, of course, is like everything you wanted. I mean, everything you wanted. Yes, yes of course. What, what do you think it is, though? I, this, I, I didn't think of this question until right now, but I'm picturing that audience. And you had me and my friends from private school Long Island who were all off to, like, fancy colleges and would watch you and see something in you where you were talking right to us, um, that you were in on the joke, that you got the whole thing, uh, that you released something in us. And then next to us were guys 20 years older who'd followed you around for the last five years, <laughs> who, didn't, who were blue collar guys. Yeah. And then there were girls, not, not that many girls. There yeah, too. Never. But, but uh, <laughs> what, do you, what did you understand about what you were doing that allowed that if someone locked into you, it sort of didn't matter what they brought to it. All right, a couple of things. Um, it, it's more it's more analysis, post-game analysis, than because it was coming from from within. It was it was honest. It was genuine. And you, I've quoted you many times. You know my quote for you? Tell me. All right. So Brian, we meet, and Brian's now working for a record label, and we wind up, you know, doing a deal with Elektra. I wind up doing, and he tells me he's seen Saw Twisted Sister thirty-five times, some crazy amount of times, and I never had a chance to sort of sit with one of these characters, these people, these fans, and ask them questions. And I said, "Why did you come see us thirty-five times?" And Brian said, "I'll get back to you on that." 
I don't know if it was the next day or the next time I see him, he comes in, he goes, the question you asked me, why did I come to see you 35 times? Because I believed you believed. And I was like, what kind of idiot savant gibberish is this? And I go, what, do you, what does that mean? He goes, you were so committed, so passionate, and, 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 you were and we couldn't help but follow you. Right. Yeah, that's what you said to me. I remember feeling like this matters to this fucking guy so much. <laughs> you know, that it mattered well, it to you in a way that was different than it mattered. And I've thought about this. It's so funny that I said that to you. I did say that to you. And I think you might have put that in your book. I did. I did. But I read book. the book and yeah. it came out. I didn't go back and reread <laughs> it again. And I was so, I wrote you and I was like, that's so sweet. You put me in. But your belief in the power, in, in not only your power and what you were doing, but in the power of like rock and roll to save you. you know, everyone talks about Bruce and I love Bruce, but I, I think Bon Scott, you and Bruce somehow all had this notion that rock and roll was the, was the bridge to some kind of personal salvation. Not to jump ahead, but I think that's part of what's connecting with my new record, this voice that has this belief system that listening to rock and roll, especially heavy metal, somehow makes us better, makes us stronger, empowers us. And now I'm fired up by that study, you may or may not have seen it, that came out that headbangers grow up to be better adjusted adults. Did you read that? No, but I love it because as you know, I was a huge metalhead till I was 18 or 19 yeah. years old. Yeah. And then Psychology Today contacts me and they want to talk to me because they said, I said, why me? And they said, well, besides the fact that you're reasonably intelligent, they felt that that testimony in, in, in of that I you know for the Senate hearings that that was a turning point in people's perceptions of headbangers because it was the first time there was one of those people and he was speaking fluent you know, he spoke well and he was sane and he was focused and and it made that that was a point where people started to say well maybe we're not understanding this well when you went in their parent parents music resource center he, those hearings right yeah. the um, the Al Gore's, Al Gore's wife's, yeah. uh, wife's thing, um, you didn't seem cowed by those people. You didn't seem intimidated by them because you knew you weren't doing anything wrong. They were trying to make you feel embarrassed for this thing that you'd given your life to and ashamed. Yeah. And you were like, no, I mean, I mean, I knew that they they had not vetted me in any fashion. They had no idea who they were calling in there. And everything they were saying was completely false. So I went in there empowered by that. But Psychology Today asked me, what is it, why is it that headbangers are, in studies, are better adjust, well adjusted? I said, because heavy metal releases dark emotions and dark emotions need to be released. We live in a world where kids are depressed and anxious and, you know, and there's all these issues with suicide because, and metal focuses, yeah, it's dark, it's, it's hate and it's, it's heartbreak and it's, it's oppression and it's all these dark, dark things, but we feel better afterwards. We feel in li we're lighter after we've rocked out, after we've banged our heads. And there's a song on my record called Roll Over You, and it's the biggest fuck you song on, the, on this record. It's like one of these rants. Like a shoot him down part two. Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. yeah. Like, we fucking despise you. You've got no heart in his shows. I'm screaming. And the last words I screamed in the studio, because it was such a fuck, I said, fuck you. And then I started laughing. And, I, and, and they said, why are you laughing? I said, because I feel better now that I said right. it. I feel better now that I screamed it. You know, and that's the truth of, of metal and rock and roll. 
Well, and, and I, I should point out that this record's the biggest hit you've had in a very long time, and it has huge traction, number one on the metal charts for four weeks. It got to number 20 on the real Billboard chart. It's it's not even a comeback. It's a, it's an entirely new endeavor. But before we talk about it, um, the thing that was different, though, about your metal shows, and I think it goes to your heart, it goes to what... It goes back to this question of uh, a belief in what you believed in, which was, yes, you called your fans... Uh, sick motherfucking friends, a twisted sister. Yeah. I had a card. Um, you. There were cards. There were cards. <laughs> you, um, but you, you had a way though of unifying the room, not in hate, actually, but in a kind of love. Like your lyrics might be angry, but when you would talk to the audience, it always felt to me like you were actively trying to lift them up. That I you, was. you weren't out there trying to fuck Give me a all the chill, but it's true. It felt like, and that. it was community. You know, it was a, this was a community of people, and a lot of people who felt disenfranchised felt. You know, maybe I'm on the outside looking in. As you said, you were there with your friends, but it wasn't all the people that went to your school. It was certain ones it's who four of us or three of us. Yeah, yeah, And you go, and there's more. There's more of us. There's more of you know. So I was trying to lift people up, and when people come up to me and say, you know. Your music, and they talk about the lyrics. They got me through some tough times. I said I was screaming in the in the night for people. I wasn't just. I was sending a message. It wasn't. Hey, let's have a party and let's get high and let's get laid. It wasn't. I was telling you it's gonna be okay. Stand up, fight back, believe in yourself. You don't have to put up with this shit. And and when I hear people heard that message, it makes me happy. Right, and 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 it's what it's what landed so hard, and and part of it is that the and and this is something I talk about on this. I know you don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but a big thing that I talk about it, and and it's something that happened to me in my own career, is that the gatekeepers are always trying to convince people who want to be artists that they don't really know. You know, you the artist are crazy. You're insane. This dream is unrealistic, and over and over. The gatekeepers are proven wrong. They're just scared and they save their jobs by saying no. And in the great documentary about Twisted Sister, which is, what's it called again? We are Twisted Fucking Sister. There you go. In the great documentary about Twisted Sister, which is a really long but worth it uh, documentary. I've watched yeah, the, you the really entire thing. You really feel the 10 years. You do. No, no, you do. <laughs> but um, in that documentary, there's this great a part of it where this A&R guy who was responsible for signing bands, Jason Flom, has this notion that he should sign the band because they're playing to 2,000 people every night. And his boss says to him, but I just checked around and everyone else has passed on them. Everyone knows about them. This isn't some great discovery. And Jason has to fight and fight and fight. And it's not till you go to England and someone else from the label, Phil Carson or whatever. Phil Carson. Phil Carson. Jason would have if he could have. They literally and then Jason did Jason's sign it in America. Then Jason signed it to the American no, label, right? Yeah, Jason, it's one of the strangest things. Jason puts it at the top of his list of signings with great pride. And Phil's always calling and says, Jason, you didn't sign them. That's hilarious. And it, he did not, he would have if he could have. Doug Morris threatened his job, told me fire him. And despite that, he went to Phil Carson and said, there's this band, you got to check them out. And Phil did, I'm, I'm shortening the story, but Phil checked us out and signed us. Jason was an A&R guy. He, had no, he didn't really have signing power at that point. Against Doug Morris's wishes, 
Right. He so he he was instrumental in it happening. Well, he like I said, he would have if he could have, and and we love Jason forever. And he, you know, like when a guy gets his job threatened, it still goes around the big boss to and 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 Phil was Doug Morris's sort of like you know I don't know what the word is there, but Doug ran Atlantic. Nemesis. And Phil was in well because Phil was kind of running. Phil was London. the head of Europe. Right. And he and he was personal friends with Ahmed Arigan, and he toured with Led Zeppelin. So he was like he signed Abba Genesis. So he was this guy. There's no saying no to him yeah, if he, he wanted to sign Twisted Sister. Right. And, 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 and Doug Morris is the head of the U.S. and there was only one person who could go over Doug's head. And that was the guy who finally did it. Phil, and, and, and Doug said, it is on your head to Phil Carson. He says, this is on your head. Right. And so then when, and then when, it, when it happened... Yeah. Uh, I mean that he took credit for it Doug yeah sure yeah. That's the, I mean that's the record business that's that's fully the the way the music has worked but D um, and I know you've talked about this in the past but most people listening to this haven't heard that stuff that's what were you when when you were playing to these thousands of people thousands. you know and you know, five nights a week selling out wherever you play. Uh, just, to, just to point out, people, you don't have a record out. This is an that, unsigned band. I mean, they would have an independent, you put the Under the Blade. Two of our uh, Twisted uh, Sister uh, records. You yeah. put um, your own records on, you yeah. want Flo and Eddie or whatever, yeah. which I remembered watching as a kid when it actually happened, um, and played Under the Blade on there, which blew my mind. That was the other thing. I, that was the good parlor trick the day we met. I remember I quoted all the lyrics to Under the Blade <laughs> to you. That I remember. I remember knowing the whole song by heart. But... Um, how, what kept you truly having the belief that you weren't crazy or that it could somehow happen? Because, you know, I mean, the documentary talks about this great and your book does too. You got close, you know, you literally like what a guy gets in a plane. I mean, everything that could happen to stop you from getting signed happened. Every sign was there that you were just going to be a bar band and yeah. that you'd earn a living, but you were never going to be a rock star. How, what? enabled you to know they were the crazy ones not you the labels were the assholes not you you guys you guys it was a thousand to four thousand a night five nights a week found casino held five thousand four thousand people all the like clubs were being built to fit our audience Right. We would send our crew down, and they would like, okay, what are the stage dimensions you need, and where's the dressing room need to be? Because we wouldn't play places. We were so huge. And there were other bands. There were other Zebra was out there. There was a few bands that were yeah, able the good to rats, fill these places. The Good, good rats, rats and Zebra, basically, at that then. time. Um, but, you know, we get rejected by some suit in the towers in New York who was, you know, down hanging at CBGB's, watching, signing a band that was playing for 75 people. And they wouldn't come to see this band playing for two thousand on a on a Wednesday night, and you guys were so fanatical. How could we? Who knows the record buyer or the record signer? And clearly, it wasn't some lawyer up there. No offense. Uh, then you get a law degree. I have a law degree. But I never practiced. Don't call me a fucking lawyer. I, you know, I did. I did. I do have a law degree. It's you have true. a law degree. I and, do. Uh, no offense. I remember that. And uh, you're a lawyer. Uh, and, um, you know, and so with the suits or the kids in the denim and leather, you know, and it, and we just got back on the horse and just kept trying. And did you know, did you, did you know you were, di your band was, because there are a lot of bar bands, as you just said. So R Zebra had one hit single, uh, the Good Rats really didn't. The more typical thing for big Long Island bands was to fade away. Even bands that had, 
a thousand people come in a night. Well, right? the the pitfall of that club scene, and I, I did a calculation in my book. Um, we were making. Okay, so you're like 20 something years old and you're playing. Yeah, this is in 1976, Making $1,000 a week cash. Right, that's each of you guys. Each of us. Yeah. Okay, so, and this is, this, this is Rat Race Choir, Zebra, um, Good Rats, Baby, Stanton Anderson. And I did the calculations. Grateful Dead Band, Terrapin Station. They in were in all Today's clubs. dollars, it was about $350,000. A year taxable income. That's why I, I did the calculation. At twenty, singing your uh, covers and your own songs. Yeah. yeah. So now, Twisted is taking seven hundred fifty dollars, seven hundred sixty each a week, and putting it back into the band. We're taking two hundred forty dollars a week salary. Rat Race Choir, they're driving Corvettes. Good Rats are driving Mercedes. Peppy is buying a house in Nissaquah. Peppy Marcello. Yes, Peppy Marcello. Yeah. So oh, there, there were guys, because you have these adoring fans. We, was, we had bodyguards at the clubs, so you could easily buy into the hype that this was the finish line. That you made it. You made it. I mean, you, there's drugs, there's women, there's money. You're rolling. You got cars. You got everything, houses. So I'm done. And Twisted Sister and Zebra, to their credit as well, were only bands that said this is not the finish line, and we were just well, stay hungry. I mean, apartment. that your idea. I mean, you call your album "Stay Hungry," stay hungry. right? Because it's not over. So we just keep reinvesting in the next videotape and paying Suzette to make new costumes because we I, we must have done five albums worth of material before we got a record deal. Just because keep because you have we were there so long. So how would you? This is a, a question I like to ask, and I wrote down to ask you, which is when you were starting out when this was happening. What would a successful life have looked like to you then? If I asked you when you were 20 or 21, like, what does success look like? What do you want to get out of all of That's a of good this? question. Why wouldn't you think that Back that then. was success? Why wouldn't I yeah, think- Yeah, playing your music every night. Yeah, the thousands of, uh, I mean, you guys were, like you said, you're, you were in crutches, on crutches and on your chair, raising your crutches in the air. Yeah, well, people, by then you were famous. <laughs> by then you were famous. Yeah, that's true. That's by true. then you were actually. We were that was stay that hungry. Was, I'm saying that was stay hungry. That was. Yeah. But, but but still, but that was a to, victory lap, you know, for you guys. Yeah, New well, York. That I will say, and I don't know if any of you listening to this have a band that meant when you were a kid, like then in college or other. But but Twisted was really our. This world doesn't exist in this way. They Twisted were our band in the area of Long Island that we were from. Your victories felt like our victories. The thing that really, when you played Nassau Coliseum. The next year, yeah, uh, I think it was a double bill. I forget with if it was uh, who it was Dio? with. Yeah, maybe it was Dio. Dio double yeah. bill, yeah. you and Dio. Yeah. But I'm, and then everyone ripped up, that night. Everyone ripped apart the cushions and oh, the, yeah, yeah. the in in the <laughs> arena. But that night, actually seeing you at Nassau Coliseum, that was really moving. And we got the gold al gold albums that at that event, you know. Oh yeah, right. We got we got our gold out, and Anita Meyer was there. Uh, right, I'm from Mark Metcalf from, from, from Animal House. Animal House, yes. On the video, yeah. I remember that night, and because, and I, this is what I've thought about a lot. You know why your victory felt like our victory, but you're talking about it, and it's because you were out there fighting against people telling you, and you would share it. I'm just thinking of it now. Part of it is you would share the rejections with us. You would yeah. share that these assholes from New York City, most people won't acknowledge that right. the assholes from New York City rejected them. Yeah. It, you would somehow talk about it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it was. I think it was that honesty, hard on your sleeve. I mean, that's rock and roll. But, it's, but a lot of it, it, a lot of people 
don't want to show those mistakes and show those failures. And uh, and we Because you would say how good it was to be back, you know, being back here with yeah. you guys versus playing some showcase. I think the last thing in the documentary I said, and I think it was the last thing, I said, I hope you guys were proud. You know, that I would think those people like yourself who came down so many times and cheered us on and lifted us up, I hope when you saw when we broke through, you were proud. And then one of those fans, one of the girl named Donna, who travels around the world. She's, I mean, I've seen her in, at a, just by herself, this middle-aged woman down in front at the barricade at Wacken in Germany, 90,000 people. Is that Donna down there? I mean, you know, and she said, we were proud, but we felt like we had lost you. You know, like it was our band. And, and I've had that experience with ACDC. I had that experience with Queen. I was a day one Queen fan. And when they, all of a sudden, Night of the Opera came out and everybody was like, I got the first Queen album, Night of the I'm like, no, right. you know, mind you, I was screaming Queen from the mountaintops, showing anybody would look at this record, listen to this record, they're incredible. And then suddenly it was pulled out of my hands. And not and yours no anymore. Longer my band. Sure. So there is that sense of loss, but I think I think you guys were proud. Well, there was that sense of loss, and, but also I think it must have been um, the flip side of this is, you know, you become this huge success. You make all this money, and I do want to talk about the fact that you wrote all the songs yourself and what that was like and why. But then, you know, it's not that, it's not just that we lost you, it's that the whole identity of the band was we are all fighting together to make it. I'm just like you. These rich assholes in suits are telling me I'm not good enough. I am good enough and you guys are good enough. But then you went to the other, you got to the other side. And, and now I, I like, I'm, I'm a, um, I was a lucky rare case for certain reasons, right? Because my life, direct, I got yes. lucky, my life direction went in a, luckily in a, you know. I, You're on the other side too. I got, you know, I got to that, but, but, but yeah. So like I made progress, but, but part of me, it was like the thing, you know, cause I went off, to, I was in college, I guess I went off to college when, your record exploded, so my future was still totally um, uncertain. But suddenly you were a big star, and you were on MTV, and you were with all those people. Did it feel as odd for you as it did for us? That's, you know, what was odd to me, and I understood it, was the way it was viewed by, I say you guys, yeah, by, yeah. by the audience. And one of the key ones I remember was when I presented at the Grammy Awards. Right. And I presented with Sheila E., uh, Vocalist of the Year, and at that point there was no heavy metal category. Metal wasn't even recognized in any capacity, right. and here I was, and I felt like the, the dorky guy with a playmate, you know, like, dude, look who I'm that's with. Like, that's how I felt. I was up there in my jeans and my, my platform boots and my, my, my leather vest, so I viewed it differently, and yet people in the audience were viewing it as, oh, he's now with he's hanging out with the Grammy people and he's, you know, but I didn't see it that way at all because I didn't fit. I, I showed up late and I left. I didn't even sit in the audience because I wouldn't sit. I wouldn't sit in the Grammy audience. I wouldn't be filmed sitting there. But they, you guys didn't know that. So you mean in your head, you didn't feel like you belonged with those people? No. I just felt like- You still I felt was, like a circus act? I, like I a there, circus no, I felt more like I was there, you know, like they had to let me in. I mean, when I went backstage, this is true. So they, after, if and you've been in the biz, after you present, there's a uh, there's uh, the press room, and you walk in, and they and there's cameras, and they fire off, and the, they start firing questions. I walk in, 
and no one asks a question. Not one question. A room full of press, and they're just staring at me. They don't know what to say. So I interviewed myself. And it was actually, got. I remember Entertainment Tonight said, Best interview of the entire oh, thing. Sure. Dee Snyder interviews himself, and so I just I said, "So Dee, is that your real hair?" And, I, and I'm switching, and I just I just start firing up. But the point is, I wasn't supposed to be there. It was like this guy isn't one of us. But my people were seeing it. They said, "Oh, Dee's like Alice went through this as well. Oh, he's selling out as opposed to Alice Cooper. Look where the hell I am." And Alice was like half in the bag all well, the time. Sure, Alice. Alice, Alice Cooper is like, dude, I'm like, I'm well, just like. Well, you're amazing. Your sobriety obviously made it that you, and not sobriety because you were a drug, um, you were had an issue when you got sober. You were just always sober. Yeah. It makes you remember. I mean, obviously you remember all of it in a way oh, that yeah. most people can't. I, I do remember. And, and, and I'm an observer more of the 80s than a participant as far as that sideshow goes of the, you know, the lifestyle. Yes, of course. Um, so I agree that it is like that perception happened um, and it wasn't what you were exactly experiencing. I was but hurt I mean, by it, actually. Uh, I'm sh- that, the, I'm- that, the, that you guys, and I understand it because I, I did it with ACDC. I did it with Queen. It's not the band doesn't do it. Metallica didn't do it. You know, you guys been screaming Metallica from the mountaintops and then finally people started listening and then the people go, Metallica sold out. Oh, sure. You, you know, well, it, yeah, when people say like the Black Album is the worst, it's like, that's crazy. The Black Album's unbelievable. Oh, no, when it came out, it was the greatest thing since sliced yes. bread. And then by the end, it was a sellout. When yeah. Metal Health came out for Quiet Riot, everybody was screaming, bang your head. And by the end, they suck. Yeah. And the same thing happened with Stay Hungry. Stay Hungry was like, you see that picture? D. Snyder's got a bloody bone. And by the end... I look like a clown. No, Stay Hungry is a twisted. There's, Stay Hungry is a Twisted Sister album. It makes oh. complete sense with Twisted Sister. See, it's, it's a fa- we it's, can talk about the next album. It's the convenient. next album is a different. Yeah, the next album is a different story. But but Stay Hungry is a Twisted Sister album. It's a convenient interpretation because people say, "Oh yeah, that's the record you sold out on." All right, a. I used to write in advance. I was writing Stay Hungry when we were recording. You can't stop. Rock well, I was going to say, well, first of all, you can't stop rock and roll is as anthemic. Anything that, like, you know, oh. I, you, you Can't Stop Rock and Roll is as anthemic a song as any song on uh, Stay Hungry. Yes. The timing was different. Yeah, it was. Uh, and, and so they, so perception. And, 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 and AJ found it? a very catchy drum beat. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I said, give me a drum cadence. Right. But I wrote the chorus for When I'm Gonna Take It in 1980. I couldn't have been hungrier. We couldn't have been struggling more. When I wrote Stay Hungry, I remember we were in a studio apartment. My wife, I mean, I was broke. Twisted was, we, we, it was... It was before you can't stop rock and roll, okay? So I'm, I'm before we recorded you can't stop rock and roll. We had just signed our deal with Atlantic. We're balls ass broke, and I Suzette went shopping, and I wrote this in the book. Forty five minutes, I wrote that album. This is uh, right around Reading, or right at right. Is it well? Reading was at the end of Stay Hungry. Then we played the Tube. So this is right around the time of the Tube. We did the Tube. The, for that Reading when you played that live, shoot him down. Yes. Is and then, after Stay Hungry came out? or No, no before, before I thought. That that's was what it. I'm saying. Under the Blade was coming out. The Under the Blade was coming out, yeah. and that's when you did that Shoot Him Down that, yeah. that, that got on that compilation album. Right. And, that, and then mm. in December, we did The Tube, which was a live broadcast. Right, I, I remember that and for the And that's when Atlantic Records signed us. But And that's around the time I wrote the Stay Hungry album. I was writing in advance. So anyway, the point is that we sold that. I was couldn't have been hungrier. Oh, but but where I imagine it got tricky is that when the album went gold or then eventually, did it get platinum? 
Stay hungry? Yeah, three times platinum, three triple right? Platinum. Triple platinum, yeah. that's what I thought. Yeah. So when it got, because you said the Coliseum show, they just brought out the gold that was album. A gold so that was when it was on, still on the way yeah. up. Yeah. So, because I thought it was triple platinum. Um, but when it came time, I imagine a guy who's every album had at least three or four songs about the fact that rock and roll was going to be the way you got to the thing and you, you, you know, you, you can't stop. And also fuck Kids all these back. hypocrites, we're gonna, we're fuck all these hip- every one of yeah. those things. Yeah. And now though, that anger, that was a real anger and a real frustration at not being seen for who you were. Like you couldn't, I, I don't know. I imagine it must've been harder to write from that place after that. For a minute, because uh, I've thought a lot about why the next album didn't really work. For a work. minute, dude, yeah. I was tapped. I mean, right. so <laughs> yeah. I write, I write, I write the "You Can't Stop Rock and Roll" album while we're recording. So we're recording in a barn, and I'm in the van working on "You Can't Stop Rock and Roll." When we're recording "You Can't Stop Rock and Roll," I had already written the songs for "Stay Hungry," and I'm cleaning them up while because there's a lot of downtime in the studio. So this is 1982. I've already got the songs for the 1984 release, okay? Something happens in 84. I talk about it in the book, and I break pattern. What happened was, and this is the truth, my bass player used to stand guard in the studio. He was always, like, sat and was the monitor to make sure everything was okay. Mark Mendoza soured on what was going on and left the studio when Tom Warman was brought in. And I was forced That's to- That's the producer. The producer. The- and so I was forced he to- He made s- Cheap Trick albums and stuff. Cheap Trick, and he did Nugent, and he yeah. did Molly Hatchet, and he did Motley Crue. He was a very Shout- important hard rock producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, A&R guy originally. Yeah. A&R guy who got stuck in the studio and was was as a producer. And uh, I'm putting the quotation marks on a podcast. Okay, but-, but the We fact- heard it in your voice. Yeah. I- <laughs> very broadcast <laughs> professional. Producer. Yeah. So, but he, so- Suddenly, I was, instead of being in the other room working on the next record, which I should have been, because we had not become big stars. So if I would work on that record at a time where we were still struggling and hoping Rhythm and dreaming, come out yet. instead, I'm in sitting day after day in the studio monitoring Stay Hungry recording, and I don't write st- go to write Stay Hungry till after we finished you 12 months of touring. You don't go to write Come Out and Play. You mean you don't write Come Out and Play. Come Out and Play. Come Out and Play. Until after you became famous. 12 months later, and I, you talk, I'm sitting, I'm living in Lloyd's Neck. I've got this big house, five nice cars, place. two boats, property. I'm sitting poolside. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I'm trying to write lyrics about teen angst. Right. And, I and am, you can't. I am t- I'm going, I got nothing. I got nothing. What do I have to complain about? looking around going, I'm not mad. I'm not mad like, like that anymore. But you could feel it in the, and the I problem for it. you is uh, we, the audience could feel it. Imagine learning new recipes from Gordon Ramsay or photography tips from Annie Leibowitz. Now you can with Masterclass. I, I love this concept of uh, Masterclass. And, and in general, I'm not somebody who, who, who likes um, supposed instruction in the creative arts because it's usually not taught by experts. It's usually not taught by masters. But Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content you'll find only on Masterclass. I mean, you can choose from classes taught by so many, like 35 masters, including... Ron Howard on directing, or Malcolm Gladwell on writing, or an astronaut, Chris Hadfield on space exploration, David Mamet on how to write a play or a screenplay. And new classes are always being added. 
Whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career, you'll find a masterclass for you. Masterclass has even been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, ESPN. And here's the good thing. Listeners of the moment can unlock access to every masterclass for a year right now at masterclass.com slash moment. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash moment for unlimited access to masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash moment. So let's go back to how you, because it's so tapped into, the anger was so important to you, the feeling misunderstood in your writing of yeah. songs, right? Because my favorite story from the documentary, um, and let me say, I've known, so JJ, D handled the music and JJ French handled the business for a long time in yes. Twisted Sister. JJ French, his name is John French. I've been friendly with JJ for 30 years also. I've known him, I know him really well. I just interviewed him yeah, for my uh, upcoming podcast. Uh, a great guy. Um, and had the vision for a rock and roll band like this a long time ago, and the documentary does a good job of explaining it. But his vision was primarily a business. It was a business vision in a way. We, I just talked about it on my podcast with him. I said you had another three years before I joined, and you know where you must have felt an additional sense of victory. He said yes, but I knew that I wasn't a writer and I wasn't a singer, so I had to as as a businessman find those pieces to get there and, you know and, and, and the other thing that d d it seemed to me JJ would do from watching is it, and and before you joined the band JJ would sing certain songs I mean it's, it's in the documentary he would sometimes he was a, he was a singer when I he, he was a he well there was a front man before and he would him sing those Rolling and then Stone at one point songs. he took over and did like a bunch of Lou Reed songs right and uh and then he decided he needed a, an actual singer but JJ's whole thing was to uh, have this very kind of affected distanced cool as his like the kind of iconography he yeah. used right um um, the way he would dress, the sunglasses, it was, um, he was at a remove from the audience and you were one of the audience. Yeah. You had a, your point of view about cool was very different. And so tell the story of when you first presented songs to this cool dude and what happened. Well, understand, I'm a suburban dork. I mean, I can admit that now. Back then, I didn't think I was. How old were you? I was, well, I joined the band, I was 20. Okay. And they're like 23. They're like they're like three and a half years older than me, those guys. And that's a big difference. 20 to 23 plus, they were in Twisted Sister already. They were from Manhattan. They were from the Bronx. JJ carried with him a Manhattan aloofness that comes from being he born in the city, lives in the city. And I, I would marvel at the way he walked through Anything going on. He walked through Harlem. Just It was like he was, you know, no one bother him because he's comfortable. I'm here. Anyway, I'm just this, this kid from suburbia, and I'm very impressed with these guys. I mean, they're older, and they're more successful, and I want to be one of them. And so J.J. had written a guitar lick or something, and I very nervously... Create, wrote a wrote a, a melody to it and wrote some lyrics and I presented it in front of the band and I even I, I was just like sweating I remember like I was so nervous and I so I sing the song to them and JJ's playing it and at the end I just started dating Suzette my wife 42 years it was a love song and JJ looks at me and goes that's about you and Suzette I said yeah he goes it's cute and he turns away and starts talking to the other guys uh. And I just died because this guy I admired so much had, and, and but instead of getting feeling defeated, I went the other way. I was like, "Well, fuck you, you're dead." 
I'm right. gonna, I am going to crush you. And I never written a song. That was my first that's song. That's what I, you had never written a song <laughs> never before. A song. No. So what do you think? And then that's what then you went on a tear, right? A tear. I buried them. They would write one song, I'd write 25. And you got them to, <laughs> but not only that, you got them to recognize yours with the better songs. Well, I just how, how did that happen? It was just like one by, by by attrition. Is it you know? I just came in there and then they say, "Well, how about this song?" And they go, "Eh, how about this song?" Well, that's pretty. What about this song? Well, that's really good. I just kept pumping songs. And you didn't ask out. them to write with you. No, you were alone, like, "I'm fucking doing this alone now. by myself. I don't need you." And they created this environment where and and then they settled in and get, became comfortable. With a D, you know, he didn't party, he didn't hang out, he had his old lady, old lady, she was 15, you know, and he's just, while we're having fun, he's the ant and the grasshopper story, you know, he's just sitting there industrious, you know, and just writing and writing and writing and writing. And then when you saw those songs start to hit with the audiences, did that, did that give you this sense that... A, a feeling about it because you would start sneaking them in, right? Oh yeah, we first because you couldn't play cover, you couldn't play originals. You had to play then. like Led Zeppelin songs. Yeah. So you just say this is a deep cut off a Deep Purple record, and later the, and and the biggest like like the compliment was when somebody come up to you at the end of the show and go, dude, that Deep Purple song's awesome, you know? And you're like, yes. Right. So you, you like slip them in there, and eventually, like when we did the North Stage or we did uh, the Mid Hudson Civic Center, we did those gigs, we did originals. Pretty much entirely. Oh, yeah, that was all original, except a fun cut. Like a you would throw one or two covers. Yeah, it's only in rock and, and roll. I right, like it, yeah. which was one of our big yes. ones. So so we're getting the feedback and the band seeing it too. And honestly, I didn't know that it was a money thing. I didn't know that I was going to get rich doing it. It would. I had you mean the songs? Say, you knew rock and roll could get you rich yeah. if you guys made it. I, I, I had this question to ask, which was JJ handled the business, you had the, the the music, and so you made much more money than those guys did. Way more because the publishing rights, the songwriter royalties are sacrosanct. Yeah, sacrosanct. No, is that the word? Sacrosanct. Sacrosanct. They're sacrosanct. The, the, you know, I'm educated record, as a lawyer. Record so. companies can't touch yeah. them. Right. So they use all the other uh, revenue streams to pay back the recording budget, pay back the video budget. But the budget. songwriter royalties, you still make money off of those. Oh, yeah. That's I'm saying. You still, yeah, when, oh, yeah, when I Want to Rock is used in a movie. Yeah, well, Spielberg just used We're Not Gonna Take It. Right. That's money for you. Played it in... in, in now, on, yeah. on the mechanical, the I mean, the band gets the um, some piece of it, yes. right? Or go but, but here's the reality of the sad reality of the business. Twisted Sister didn't start seeing any record royalties. We weren't recouped until Strangeland movie came out and we reunited to do that soundtrack. Phil Carson went, we still owed like $150,000. This is 1998. And Phil Carson, who was not our manager, Phil Carson is my manager now, he went to Ahmed Erdogan, who was the head of Atlantic, and said, Ahmed, these guys, they've sold 10 million records and they haven't made a penny. They owe money for their, their videos, they owe money for all the, all the things that record companies charge back. And he said, "Can we? I'm trying to reunite them, can you wipe the books clean? And it was 98 that we started seeing royalty statements. That was the first time. First the time. Did, but you were seeing songwriting royalties the whole time. Because yes, nobody the whole can time. touch Getting that. big advances. So how did, you, how did you fucking manage that with everybody, man? I mean, now you guys made money live, so they weren't poor in no. the beginning. I mean, the JJ had, they had um, some money because you had live dates, right? Yes, yes, yes. But this, 
you know, and merchandising, things like that. But merchandising, this, um, that's from Spaceballs. Yeah. But how but, did you? Uh, uh, no, I, I had, like, it was very clear. Like, I was writing on my own. No one was helping. Everybody had opportunity. Nobody was stopping anybody from writing. They just stepped back and let D do it. But was there resentment, do you think? I'm sure there was, but... But you didn't allow yourself to care about it. I didn't care about it at all. Because I didn't care about it at all. Because they, they laughed at your first song. They, they laughed, <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, and I worked so hard. Like, and everybody else, I would just... Like, every plane flight, they were watching movies. I was, like, writing lyrics. I would spend every hour, every... I, I never partied. I never... I became... I mean, even, you know, Suzette put up with a lot. Oh and God, I became, yeah. I was so obsessed and so hyper-focused that, you know, I wasn't, couldn't have been fun to hang around. I never wanted to go out because I was playing bars every night. My night off, I just wanted to sit in, in the apartment. Well, it's, it, I, I often say this, that if you really, people often say, you know, I want to do this thing. I, I want to be an artist. I want to be a writer. You know, I have my job. And how can I, and, and I always say, you have to say no. To, uh, yes, you can have a job and a family and be an artist, but you can't also have a social life. You can't also party. You you something's got to give. Something's got to give. Say no. Yeah. To stuff, right? You yeah. gotta go like, and even saying no to we're all on the bus having a good time together. No, I'm gonna be in the corner, in the getting corner. this rhyme right. Yeah. Be figuring out what I want to say. Uh, How? What do you think gave you that purpose? Do you know? If you thought, what were your parents like? Were they encouraging? Discouraging. From just, a, how discouraging? Uh, my father, um, God love him, he's still with us. Uh, he basically did threw up every roadblock he possibly could. The whole way. Yeah, the whole way. He thought until, until I joined Twisted, um, but he was just he was just this guy. He was just constantly he would like okay take something like PMA. In my book, I talk about positive mental attitude. Uh, I found out recently that that band Bad Religion has. PMA t-shirts and apparently you know they they came up with it on their own that's fine I came up with it in 1971 sure. yeah. I was in high school and it was just I, I just this mindset that I was not gonna this is what I'm really interested in yeah, yeah I'm not gonna accept I felt like I was being like remember in Animal House when they had the people coming for the um, for the fraternities and the outcasts were being directed back to the couch yeah. jugglish uh, Lonnie, yeah. like, right, right, okay. And no matter what they did to try and break it doesn't out, matter. Of kept, course, yes. I felt like juggling. That was you in high school. Yeah, I was just, and I felt like I was being sort of steered. My father's going, you know, civil service is a great business. Uh, they're putting you in the remedial classes yeah, or whatever. Yeah, and it's just like, this is where you're going. And it's about 16. I was like, I felt myself going there. Like I was being steered to the couch with Juglish and Lonnie. And, awesome. and all of a sudden I'm going, no, I'm not doing this. I am not, and I literally remember, I just said no. And I just started, it was two things I started to do. One was I developed PMA, positive mental attitude. And my father used to mock me mercilessly. Every time I was doing the shittiest job, he'd go, hey, D, positive mental attitude. Ah. Hey, D. Because you would talk about it to oh, him? Yeah. He's giving you shit. And you're go, like, I, go, I have a positive. I'm going to make it, Dad. PMA, Dad, PMA. Positive mental attitude. And he is just mocking me into it to his Understanding them as I got older, depression babies. These people who grew up during World War II, sure. dreams don't come true. You know, the only things is blood, sweat, and tears. And he was right. 
but you could use blood, sweat, and tears to make your dreams come true as well. And so he thought he was saving me. Of course. With his, with his mocking and telling me I can't go to band rehearsals. So I think, okay, what? Can I go jogging? Uh, and he goes, yeah, go ahead. And I would jog the rehearsal. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that, so you had to steal, that's, so you had to steal yourself in a way. Yeah. Against them telling you it's never going to happen. It wasn't them. It was, it was, it was the, the school institution, everything. I remember, you know, I remember like another thing was I started, you know, positive reinforcement. I, I started saying excellent. People say, how's it going? Excellent. Everybody, excellent. And I go, excellent like i and it wasn't going excellent but i just kept telling myself it's going excellent and it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy it became excellent i remember a high school girlfriend dressing me down in front of my entire class it was it was actually the choir it was a choir event and long story short she just was screaming at me it was an ex-girlfriend that you're a big nothing, you're never going anywhere. You're, you know, because I, you know, and it was had to do with me advising her brother to um, not to 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 you know to not quit the band. She wanted me to give him advice because I was had not had success, and I told him, no, stick with it, believe in yourself, PMA man, you're gonna make it. She goes, are you freaking kidding me? Look at you, you're up, and she's screaming at me in front of all my friends and peers, and I said, you bitch. One day, well, she knows. Well, she knows. She knows. Well, she knows by now. Yeah, she knows. Know. All of them know they by all know. now. Yeah, they all I mean, know you're D. Fucking now. Snyder. I mean, they understand they what happened. And the odd thing is, they were all friends with me in high school. I was so unpopular, and yet when they cooked back, everybody was in my class. Everybody knew me. Everybody hung with me. That's, you didn't. I, that's just true. I know. But I Brian know that did. that's true. I was there. I mean, there's no no question about it. Brian I mean, did. I didn't know you were like a, a god to me on the stage, but um. And it was weird, you know, like I say, even though my background was so different, the, I had this connection with this idea because I had a hard time in school also. And uh, I had this idea and I always knew certain of these teachers just didn't understand and I knew better as you knew you knew better. And so when I'd see you on stage, it was like, well, that guy would get it. If I spoke to that dude, he would know. And you, you, you definitely came from, I mean, on so many levels, but your dad, I remember your dad was so supportive of you. Yes. And I was so impressed when you told me how no matter what, he flew back. Oh yeah, no always. Matter That's all what, true. To yeah. coach, he would every coach game. little league. He would yeah. do anything he could. And your My dad was were great. very big businessman and very successful. That's right. I was so impressed with that because I didn't have that. So, but you was. But you were like that with your kids. Yes, I've seen it. I've seen it in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's clear how attached you are and connected you are to your yes. children. Every game no, I, I could be at, I'm there. I often say the biggest advantage I had in the world. Forget that I was raised. There were two. One, not I'm going to pay for college and law school. Like being a white dude when I, when we grew up was a sure. huge advantage in the world. Yeah. Compared to like, you know, if you were a woman then or a black person then, it was much harder. So hard compared to what it was like for me. But the other huge advantage I had these two parents who believed in me. Which for me was when the teachers would be like, he won't shut up in class, he won't do his homework. Yeah, so who they were, were like, you? Who were you rage, raging against? Was it the teachers? Oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Okay, they weren't oh, the school you? that didn't understand that I was smart at all, for sure. Oh, okay. That would, well, or, or that they would understand I was smart, but they would think I was late. They would, actually. They, I don't want to. Oh, like, they mean, knew I was smart. Oh, you heard that, They too? thought I was He's lazy yeah. and that I was, um, I, I didn't working respect. working up to his abilities. I didn't respect them. And for me, it was like, well, you're a sucky teacher. You're not making this interesting for me. I'm bored by you. You, know, you haven't said anything funny. In six months, I've been in your class. Why? You know <laughs> what I mean? Funny counts. Yeah, funny counts. <laughs> you know, the funny teachers I really worked hard <laughs> yeah. for. But, yes, all that stuff. I couldn't. Um, make it make sense school when I was young just couldn't get it to make sense to me 
And yes, so that I needed to tap into that, but I at least had parents who tried. Now they were scared, interestingly, like you, they were scared too that I was not gonna blow it. Like any parent, they were scared I was gonna blow it. I come so from my that father era. would they, my father would come home, but then when it got really bad at school, there would be times where even he couldn't understand why I couldn't just come on. You can just do this. Well, look at this. I mean, you know, now, now, now I'm interviewing him. Well, I'm going to flip it right back. But look at this. You know, you, so you went to law school. The safety net. The right, safety at net. night, yeah. And my parents tried to get me to have a safety net, and I bought into it for a year, but I cut, cut class all the time, and I've got an absentee failure. Uh, but the idea that, well, what if you don't make it? And, and you know, and finally, at some point I said, if I have a safety net, and you didn't use it, but I'm going to use it. And I said, I've got to take the net away. Yes. And I've got to, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. It's live or die. I, and that's what I felt watching you. But um, for me, and I'm, I'm going to flip it back to you, but for me, I didn't really know. For me, it was hidden that I wanted to be an artist till I was 30. I didn't know. If you would have asked me, I wouldn't have said I wanted to be an artist. I would have said I wanted to help artists. I was so it impressed until I was and cheering when I saw your name you know, pop up. On the up. first movie. Yeah, first sure. Movie, I'm going, Brian? I mean, yes. God, he goes and gets his law degree, never used it. To his, then he's an A&R guy and his success in that, and now he's writing and, and crushing it in that. Because I'm, you know, I've dabbled in writing as well. I'm a well, writer you wrote too. a movie. I wrote a movie. I've written other screenplays. I've sold some things. Haven't had your level of success, but I love writing. And uh, it's such a... It's, it's hard, but I was 30 until I figured out, like, I got to do this or I'm going to be on hat. You know, if I don't do this, I'm going to be a dick to people I love. Do you love, love what, about writing what I love about writing? What do you love about it? that it doesn't matter what I look like, oh, well, my that, color, yeah. my age, my sex, anything, as long as what I put on paper, an actress, if, I, if, I, if a 14 year old African-American lesbian can say my words and, and, and sell them, it doesn't matter who I am back here. As, you know, and whereas when I'm on stage, I'm in front of the camera, I'm limited by this. You know, I'm Hellboy. I'm limited, you know, I'm never gonna be, I was Captain Howdy in Strangeland because in my mind, I was a cop but I couldn't be the handsome cop. So I had to be the creepy, scary guy, because that's what I am. Meanwhile, beautiful, sweet Kevin Cage, Kevin Gage, who is the lead guy, he ends up in jail, oh, sadly. Oh, I know. That you was, that was that guy. so And then he ends up in jail for something that's now completely legal. What a talent, too. Uh, yeah, and Wayne Grove, for people who don't know, in yeah. Heat. Uh, and he was in my movie, Knockaround, guys. I love that guy. In Heat, I, I mean, when they said, what about this guy? I go, he's a white supremacist. And they said, I said, I really thought he was a white supremacist. That's hilarious. He was from so the, con- from, from Heat. Heat. He was so convincing. And they said, D, he's an actor. That guy's and a said, I, said, I said, well, he's a good actor because I'm actually believing he he's a ter- That guy's a terrific actor. But um, yes, what I like is just that feeling you get, I'm sure when you write songs, which is just that sense of being like hyper-present, but also floating and yeah. how you're barely tethered to it and you're just out there, but you're, you know, you're when it goes well and you're kind of just, fl- there's no other feeling exactly like that, right? Did you read did you read Mark Twain's uh, I've read a lot me of Mark too. Twain. Yeah. No, no, his 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 uh, autobiographies. You mean like the essays he wrote no, and no, stuff? No, no, he's or? written they've 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 got hundred years later they've released his Oh no, I didn't autobiographies. Read that. I did not read that. I've just oh, read his Oh my god, it's books. him and you gotta read him, but he just talks about the process, you know. But just where is when But do you wrote, get that songwriting too? You must get that when you write songs too. Yeah, it either speaks to you. I mean other people it's either coming out of you or other times you just sort of it's not flowing. And he said, when it's not flowing, you just walk away. So you Come don't write every it. day. You don't force yourself, I'm gonna write an album now and no matter what happens, I'm gonna no, do no, it. No, no, no. There's that that's there's that Diane Warren school and, and Stephen King. Every day I go into the office. Yes. No matter what I I write. 
I've fortunately I've got more of a faucet uh, approach. I have to write every journal day. I basically have to write every day. Yeah, but I have to journal every morning so that I get something out. Like Penn does it every night. I know Penn journals every night. Does he? I yeah, every night of his life. But I journal um, in in the Penn who loves you thinks the world of you. Great, we great guy, and we just really sp we spent some quality time in the back of a van on uh, Celebrity Apprentice. Oh, yes, the, <laughs> you really get to know a man with the in worst. the back of the van. The Moment with Brian Koppelman is brought to you by the new Showtime original series, Kidding, directed by Michelle Gondry and starring Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Carrey stars as Jeff, a.k.a. Mr. Pickles, an icon of children's television and a beacon of kindness and optimism to both children and adults alike. When his family life starts to unravel, Jeff discovers that keeping it all together isn't as easy as one, two, three. Will Jeff head for a breakdown or a breakthrough? Don't miss the new series, Kidding. Sundays at 10 p.m. following new episodes of Shameless only on Showtime. Watch the premiere of Kidding for free on YouTube now and subscribe to Showtime to watch Kidding, My Show Billions, Hit Movies, and more. You did just release this, this album, D, that um, has had this great success, and I listened to it a few times, and I'm... It's so strong. Uh, and I had heard your last album, which felt much more like a de what I expected you to do in a way. Because yeah. it had those melodies, those D. Snyder melodies, which are these incredible sing-along melodies. I don't know if you wrote the last one. but No, no, I was involved with it, but it was it was definitely, that was a, more of a mainstream rock record. Just didn't feel it was a, I'm a I'm an OG metalhead. Yes, day one. But that song but had those melodies. That out last time had those like kind of float, lilting melodies. Yeah, yeah, more, you know, it was, it was nicer. Yes, it was nicer and more mainstream and but more accessible. This record's vicious, and this, in a great and way. This is connecting. You go to Spotify and it's like eighteen to fifty-eight. I mean, it's not like a spike at forty-five. It's not a spike at fifty years old. It's so. I was at a did a in store yesterday. It was hundreds of people there, and the, and the store owner said, "I've got kids coming in saying I need want the D Snyder album," and he goes, "Oh, you're a Twisted Sister fan?" They said. Who's Twisted Sister? That's the best. That to me is the best. That's the best. Not that I'm not proud, but I'm being judged on my performance today for the performance. Yeah, and uh, there are a couple things about this. I have a couple more things I want to cover before we're done. I really do want to talk about the difficult years when Come Out and Play didn't do well. And yeah. how, so positive mental attitude, you use it all, you become D. Snyder, you fall prey as everybody does to spending a lot of money and buying the houses and the cars. And you've talked about this a lot publicly. Yeah, and, and I can't almost blame went, drugs or went, alcohol. You almost or went bankrupt. I wasn't ripped off. Right, you no. almost went, you almost went almost bankrupt. Almost twice, two bankruptcies. Two bankruptcies. My bankruptcy, and then my wife had to go right. bankrupt. So you went bankrupt. Yeah. Um, but you kept the songwriting streams, so you weren't really going to... No, um, at that point, I'll tell you what, Tell man, me what happened. By, by, the, by the 90s, um, you know, when, when grunge came in, Oh, sure. You couldn't give away I know. 80s songs. It was a dirty word. So can you talk about what that felt like to you at that time? Like, how did what were you telling yourself then? Other than were you yelling at yourself, like, D, you're such an asshole? Or were you like, we're going to figure this out? Probably both. You know, it's like, because I used to look at these artists and say, you know, who lost it all. And they were always stoned or drunk or, you know, my management ripped me off, my, my you know. And I said, it's not going to be me. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be sober. I'm going to have my going to have my hands on everything. And I did, and I still lost it all. And it was. And if people say, how's that happen? I say, well, the ego that got you there made you believe against all odds you would make it. 
when you make it and then you start to fall, that same ego convinces you, oh, this is temporary. This is, trans this is a transition period, the next album, the next tour, the next this. So you keep telling yourself and you don't, instead of cutting back and going, all right, sell off some of these cars, get a smaller house, you know, pack, sock it away. You go, no, 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 keep paying the bills. It's, it, it's going to fix itself. And then it doesn't. And then you're advancing. You know what advance advances are where the publishing company, the record company, merchandising companies, they give you money in advance of the to sales. To kind of get you through a period of time. Yeah. And then at some point... It, you're so in the red, nobody will advance you anymore. And I had a year where I had a zero dollars income. Zero. Is, a, it, is that possible? A zero? <laughs> and so what did you do? How did you rebuild? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's okay. First of all, there's that root, it was, and this is an odd time in history, although I think the swing era people may have felt it when rock and roll was born. Right. Where, they, where you wake up one day, literally one day, and they go, we're not doing that anymore. Right. And you go, not doing what anymore? What you do. <laughs> right. You That's mean, over. I mean, you mean my band? No, no. The way you sing, not doing that anymore. The way you perform, not doing that anymore. The way you write songs, like I studied a form of medicine they found a cure for. Right. You know? Oh. And 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 with no and my my mindset was stay focused. Never, you know, myopic, be myopic. You'll get there. And I did get there. Never thought about the what ifs, no safety net. You wake up, married, three kids. They stop advancing you money. You've got no money. And now what? What do you do? You put a gun in your mouth and blow your head off or you pick yourself up. And I, I've said in my book, I literally at one point was riding a bicycle, answering phones at a desk job for $200 a week. And people would walk in the office and go, aren't you D. Snyder? And I would say no. Right. Ugh. Deny who I am. And you know what? Not one of them questioned it. That's because funny. what would D. Snyder yeah, be D. doing Snyder sitting, sitting here? here? They go, man, you look just like him. I go, it's uncanny, right? right. Oh if only, God. if only. And um, so I, and tr then at that point, you know, that's when I started doing voiceover started auditions and I started writing and I started doing radio. I just started scrambling. Right, you got the radio show going soon after that, well, right? Well, yeah, it was Metal soon. Nation. No, it was, it, was, damn, it was a few years, man. I remember sitting in my basement writing stuff and, you know, and, and creating and going, I'm going to be out of here. I'm not PMA, 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 and a positive mental attitude and the little voice inside going, but what if? Oh, you started hearing that voice. Oh, what if you, what if this you had the kids. is it? What if this is it? What if this is your, and, the, and Suzette went back to work at a, at a hairdresser, not back to work. She never worked at a hairdresser in her life. She went to work at a hairdresser. And while I watched the kids and you just don't, and, and then you're sitting there, no, not gonna let, don't let that voice creep in on you. I'm telling you people, don't let that self doubt creep in. It right. is cancer. Yes. It is poison and, and it will eat away at you and destroy you. And you found a way to shut it out. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, yeah. Just keep moving. <laughs> I don't know what. Suzette picked me up a lot. You know, it's, it's an just, amazing thing that you were able because you waited it out long enough for then an appetite for Twisted Sister to come back. Well, that was we got that. I was already doing radio at that point. When Twisted Sister reunited, I was already making six figures doing radio. Right. You'd put yourself back yeah. in a position where you had a life. Yeah, I was doing I was um, doing morning radio in Hartford and Richmond, simulcasting. So I'm making six figures doing that. I'm the voice of MSNBC simultaneously. You know, Hardball with Chris Matthews tonight at eight on MSNBC. You know, so that's a six-figure gig. So I'm like, I'm rolling. We've got a big house. I'm rolling, and then Twisted reunites. So now I start making money over that. So 
I'm back. I, I made my way back, but it was. Can't even, I, I, I mean, forget it, man. It's terrifying, it's, right? It's terrifying. And people say, well, and I, one of the questions I get asked is, God, you do so many things. What is What drives you? I say 10% inspiration, 90% desperation. Desperation. And, and knowing, now, the second time when you started making the money, did you figure out how to be more responsible with oh, it? Oh, yeah. Pay your taxes. Right. Vote, That's vote a good one. one. Pay off your credit card bills. I mean, so I, you know, I started... I, and I'm I'm terrified. And Suzette, I keep saying, oh, we're going to retire, Suzette. I said, I'm retiring. And she goes, yeah, 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 yeah. We were down. We built a house in Belize on the Caribbean, right on the beach. And um, she said, do me a favor. Hands me a legal pad. You know how long those are. The yellow pad. She goes, write down all the things you're working on. That's funny. So I start writing. Single spaced. It filled an entire page. Nice. She goes, yeah, we're retiring. Nice retirement. stuff that... You know, that people you don't know about, books that I'm starting to write. I mean, this, that, the other thing. I've got, my brain is firing a million miles an hour. And I'll go, well, I'm, I'm slowing down. She goes, <laughs> right. That's she it, goes, from retirement. You're slowing to, down. I thought I used to have two pages. But, from uh, retirement you know, to slowing down. And then you make this record. And so, l- lastly, um, thing about this record is you didn't write it. And, and you're so defined as a songwriter and you define yourself. That whole story of you being like, well, fuck you, I'm going to write these songs. So, what happened? that allowed you to trust this process of making a record where someone else wrote the tunes and, and you sang. How did this how did this leap of faith come to be? Firstly, I stopped writing in 95. Second Widowmaker record, um, Grunge was coming in. And one of the reviews, I don't I don't listen to reviews, but you know, you read reviews too. Okay, we don't read them, we don't take them when it's bullshit. We're like, you have to dick. You know, the review of we're not gonna take it. I think Rolling Stone said, what from who? That's three words. Fuck you. What from who? Fuck you. Fuck you. All right, so you know, all right, so but, uh, shit sandwich. They said shit yeah. sandwich, basically. Final tap. Final tap yeah. reference. But it doesn't but when they say something that resonates in the voice in your head that you saw it you then okay and the guy says it sounds like these trying to sound like today's bands and i had been studying the grunge bands i was studying soundgarden i was studying and i'm was they called me on my shit with twisted sister i was just writing it was inspired it just came from just just came out of me and became part of what was the 80s sound it wasn't by design it just was and at that point, I said, they're right. It's not my time's over. Boom. I can start doing radio, TV, whatever I'm doing, writing. So now Jamie Josta comes along. And then I, I just want to say, at that time then, you also started doing these big Twisted Sister festival dates. Yeah, but it's, after it's, that. It's, it's, it's oldies show. Right. And Twisted keeps going, let's do a new record. I go, and I'm not going back to the future. I'm not writing an old-sounding new record that nobody buys anyway. But you were building a constituency. As you were doing that, you were out there playing to thousands and thousands of yeah, people. Yeah, and one thing that was connecting with people, and this connected with Jamie Josta, is holy shit, look at this guy. He's still a lion. He's still roaring. His voice is powerful, and and people are just like believing he when he when he speaks to them, he, everybody's just stopped and they're listening to every word that registered with Jamie. And when Jamie Johnston came to me and said, "D, I challenge you to do a contemporary metal record," and I he said, I'm, "He says, dude, your voice is iconic. It's strong as ever. You're as powerful as ever, and there's a need." 
You know, we're, we're lacking. Dio's gone. Lemmy's gone. We, you know, there's Halford. He goes, he says, I put you in that same place with these people. I go, and me, those are my heroes, Halford. Dio, I'm like, I'm like, dude, that's your words, not mine. I wouldn't dare. He goes, well, I am daring. He goes, you're iconic and there's a place for you. I said, who's producing? He said, I am. And I knew Jamie produced things. I said, who's writing? I said, because I, if I write, it either sounds old or it sounds forced. He goes, D, everybody will want to write for you. So people, Jamie started, he opened the door. What's Jamie's band? Jamie's Hate Breed. Right. And Josta. And he was best known by many for being one of the hosts of Headbangers Ball for years. So, and people from Lamb of God, Disturbed, Kill Switch Engage, these contemporary bands started stepping, moving, coming forward and contributing. And Jamie, to his credit, he cultivated all the material to make sure, and he's and I, he lost sleep. He said, "D, when you said yes, he said suddenly oh, it went shit. from being I have this idea to bring John Travolta back." Okay, I'm talking about um, yep, basically Fishing, I'm yeah. John Travolta. You know, I want to bring John Travolta back. Now I have the responsibility oh, yeah. to bring John Travolta back. I've got to give him the the lines. I've got to give him the part. You know, I, I challenged him to make this comeback, and now it's on me. And he did it, though. And he did. So Jamie just starts. He says he he just he just just got into D. Snyder, listened to everything. He was already a fan, and he said, "Study you." We talked at length about it, about everything I believed in, where I was coming from, and but meantime, now I'm told I have to do a trust fall. Right. Okay. Yeah. And now I said, "Okay, I'll do it." But now I'm going to trust this guy to write me songs. Who is this guy? And this is the truth. I never heard a Hatebreed oh, song. Oh, that's funny. You didn't I know didn't his know music? No. I knew Jamie as a person because we were both, I created Headbangers Ball. It was called Heavy Metal Mania. So I'm always regarded as one of the Headbangers Ball group with Ricky Rackman. Tammy. And, uh, Tammy and Jose uh, Jose Mangus from uh, from the Sirius XM. Mangan. Mangan. So I, you know, I'm in that crew and that's how I met Jamie. So I'm going, shit. And I, the little bit I knew was that he didn't sing any melody. He's a non-melody singer. So we go in the studio and we do American Made and Running Mazes. And the first, it's, I hear American Made, I'm like, yeah. Oh, this is me. And this, this, this sounds like these words are coming from me. And, and one thing I knew was, you know, Sinatra didn't write my way. You know, and, 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 and Larissa didn't write Respect. That was Otis Redding telling his old lady, bitch, respect me when I come home from work. That was a dude bitch slapping his old lady and Aretha took the song and said, oh no, it ain't. I mean, so if if you can, if the words speak to you and you can make them your own, Elvis never wrote a song, but when he sang them, it, it's all that matters is can can the actor deliver the lines you write, Brian? Absolutely, right. Right, and it comes so down you to said, that. But, but, and so, so you go and do it and did you know, so you knew it was special. You felt it was the special. The first song, it's like, you know, that roar you hear at the beginning of American Made, you yeah. I listened to that song right before you came up and, today. Yeah. And I, on my side, going, yeah, I'm feeling it. And Jamie and the other guys, you know, this is an, this is an idea. We'll bring D back. And, I, and, and I'm going, okay, this is an idea. And I'm going, yeah, fuck yeah. And Jamie's on the other side looking at the, his guys, his, his team going, holy shit. It's this, good. This is better than we thought. It. We thought this is even better. So we're like, now, so now the songs are coming in. And I'm going, this, I get this. I get this. I feel this. I'm happy here, and, and and then more and more songs come in, and more and more people are getting involved, and now the record comes out, and the reviews are like, every review starts with these words, 
I did not expect this record. And, I, and I'm screaming at the screen, I didn't expect it either, I'm 63. Right, and now, and the fact that it actually hit the Billboard chart and got to number one in the metal charts. And the metal charts, I'm, I'm up with all the, re- the chocolate charts, you know, Five Finger Death Punch, All That Remains, you know, all these contemporary metal bands, and Dee Snyder, and, and it's just connecting. It's amazing, man. Hearing you talk about this and seeing you here makes me so happy. I mean, uh, it's funny. I have known you a long time. We've always liked each other. Uh, but part of me still is 16, looking up at you on the North Stage stage and you saying, hey, everybody, give me one of these. Give me one of these. The Dangerfield <laughs> thing with, Dangerfield. The, with the OK sign. And the way that that made me feel like... Um, even if the people at school thought I was an idiot and the teachers didn't respect me and I was in trouble for throwing out uh, the grades when they came home and ripping them up, that I had a chance someday to go do something great. And, you know, you're one of the the people who made me think that when I was uh, 16 years old. So, you know, thanks, did, man. man. And thanks for continuing to fucking do what you do. And thank you for believing I believed. Right? Because without it, there was nothing. I mean, you said, what, that was the first thing you said here. What kept you going? You guys... The passion, you know, I'm like, Roar, and you guys are like, yes! And I'm going, all right, they know, not this fucking idiots in in those in the towers, 666, what is that, Broadway, the, the, the black building? Sure. Yeah, who puts a black tower and number 666? I, I don't think record guys are in that building. There was no building. record guys in there for sure. I think that's, a, I want to believe that's Jared Kushner's building. The 666 building I, I has think, to be Jared Kushner's. Oh my God, it has I think, to be. I think it is, maybe. It is now. It is now. I do, I think it is. But it was, I mean, these guys don't fucking know. They you know. know. You know. And if you're so there. You're thanking me, I'm thanking you. All right, good. That's a great place to go listen to D's record, buy his record. Go back and listen to old Twisted Sister records, too. They're really, really good. Under the Blade, one of the great lyrics of that era. All right, everybody. You can follow D. He's on social media. What do you want to do? D Snyder, everything. At D Snyder, Instagram, at D Snyder. Spelled with an I. It's an adjective, not a proper noun. I'm Snyder than you are. When are you, uh, when is your podcast starting, the new podcast? Uh, in September. I'm not sure the exact date. Um, is it going to be called The D. Snyder Show? Do you know? It's called I Want to Talk. D. Snyder, <laughs> I Want to Talk. So find. <laughs> your lead is like, I want to talk. Right, perfect. <laughs> so find uh, D. Snyder's podcast. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.